0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 11 through 28. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Children can be dismissed ages 2 through 4 and grades 1 through 3.
1: You may be seated. Good morning. Well, on we go as we make our way through the book of Hebrews. Um, God has spoken through the son, and he continues to speak to us this morning. The book of Hebrews, I think you may have noticed, is kind of helping us read the Old Testament. But it can be frustrating to read Hebrews if you're not familiar with the Old Testament. I was just thinking of this silly little picture in my mind as Dean was reading. It's like looking into a bowl of spaghetti. It's just kind of seems so random, right? That's why you need the Old Testament to really understand the book of Hebrews and what the arguments that is being made here. So one of my hopes is that through this sermon series, you are seeing the contemporary significance of the Old Testament. Um, Last week, I attempted to explain the importance of Melchizedek and what Jesus has to do with the priestly line of Melchizedek. I took you to Genesis 12. I took you to Genesis 14 to show you why the book of Hebrews picks up on these stories and explains them to us. Long sermon short, if you weren't here last week, it is through the priestly line of Melchizedek that God blesses the nations through Christ. Without the backstory, you can't fully grasp the point being made in Hebrews 7 verses 1 to 10. Beginning now in verse 11 of Hebrews 7, the author of Hebrews leans into this idea that Jesus is a superior high priest, and he has to make the case for it. He just can't can't simply state it into existence, just say it and make it become true. He takes us back to the Old Testament once again to show us why. Because Jesus is a superior high priest, Christians have eternal hope. That's one of the connections that he makes And that's the connection I want you to see this morning. As a side note, as I've been studying the book of Hebrews, and I I think this is true whenever you study any book of the Bible, and you might know this for yourself, you study something intensely and you realize you're learning new things along the way. I hope that's always the case when we get into our Bible reading. We're continually learning. And one of the things that I was struck by as I've been kind of digging in week in, week out, into the book of Hebrews is the theme of hope the theme of hope. It keeps popping up. We have hope because of this. We have hope because of that. And then we see that once again today. And frankly, if at this time, if you, the Christians were being persecuted. And if you live in a culture that is hostile to the Christian faith, hope is vital. It is vital. It's like drinking water. You can't live without it. Side note over. What we're going to see this morning is that the oath of God about the Son being a superior high priest is more robust, more durable, and more reliable than the law of God. Now, one final note before I pray. And this is just a good lesson for me and an encouragement, hopefully for you. On Friday morning, I was sitting at my computer. My daughter, uh, my youngest daughter was to my left. And... uh, we were talking about this particular sermon. I was just expressing to her, I don't know how to take this bowl of spaghetti and kind of explain it for you this morning, right? How do I teach this well and be faithful to God's word? And I, and I told her, hey, would you just read Hebrews 11, or excuse me, Hebrews 7, verses 11 to 28, and uh, just tell me what you think. And so I gave her my Bible. And she reads it. And after reading the passage, she said something that I wish every pastor would hear from their child, She said that I should tell you all, you all, about God's Word and less about what I think. (laughs) (laughs) So my goal this morning, per my daughter's advice, is to open the Word of God and just let it loose. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, how humbling it is to hear Sound advice from a daughter. Good advice. And Lord, I need your help this morning to be faithful to your word. I pray for my dear friends that are in front of me right now that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak to their hearts through your word. You continue to speak to us this morning, and we're grateful for that. But we humbly come before you, asking you to continue to work in our lives, pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes change can be hard. For example, Sharice and I have moved several times throughout our 16 years of marriage. While moving might bring excitement, you know, you see new things and it might bring adventure, it also can be challenging. After you move, you need to settle into a new home. Perhaps you need to make new friends. You need to acclimate to a new job. If you have kids, there's, there are additional layers of change. There are times when all the change is so difficult that there's this desire to go back to the old job, to go back to the old home, to get back to the old routines. And you know, the older I get, I don't know if you feel this, the older I get... The more I do not like surprises, the more I I lean into this idea. I just want things to be stable. How was your day? Just like the day before. That was a good day. (laughs) Because change can be hard, right? Some Hebrew Christians in the first, first century were likely struggling with change. The initial audience of this letter was likely struggling with the implications of following Jesus Christ. What was upended for Hebrew Christians, for Jewish Christians of the first century, was an entire way of life because their faith was all-encompassing. Like, for example, every time the Powers family moved, things changed. Some things were upended. But one thing that did not change is we carried our faith with, with us wherever we went. Every time we moved, we were able to find a church that was like-minded and practice faith in God the way that we thought was consistent with Scripture. When Jews converted to Christianity, they didn't move from one location to another, but they needed to learn that the way they worshiped God needed to change. Their understanding of God needed to change. Their manner of worship needed to change because Christ has ushered in a new covenant through his death on a cross and resurrection from the tomb. Here's a critical piece of information to understand the mindset of the author of Hebrews, basically from this point forward throughout the rest of the book. Humming in the background... Since the beginning, really, of the book of Hebrews, but it's gonna ramp up in Hebrews 7. Humming in the background is the theme that the old covenant has run its course, has run its course, and has led to a better covenant through Christ. The point of Jesus being greater than the angels, which we spent a lot of time on, the point of Jesus being greater than Moses, which we definitely talked about, the point of Jesus being greater than Joshua, and now, the greatest high priest is meant to show you the depth and profundity of the new covenant. The new covenant meant change. Last week, I attempted to show you the importance of, of this guy named Melchizedek, right? I said that he is this man of mystery because he shows up in Genesis 14, then we see him. Once in Psalm 110, he shows up again in Hebrews. However, his inclusion in the book of Hebrews is essential to know why Jesus is the greatest high priest in that particular priestly order of Melchizedek. For the first century Jew, hearing Hebrews 7, verses 11 to 28, which Dean read, will either compel you or repel you. This passage compels people to the truth or repels people away from the truth. There was either an aha moment as the dots of Holy Scripture were being connected, or there was this oh no, an oh no moment because the implications of Jesus being the most significant high priest would require change under the new covenant. Before I dissect the passage, I do think I need to explain the term covenant. Might be new language for some of you. I was just talking to Pastor Rob earlier, and I was just expressing to him that in five years um, since since the sh- church started, I'm not sure I've taken time to explain the importance of covenants in the Bible because it really does impact how you interpret Scripture. The term covenant is all over the pages of Scripture, all over. This morning, I, I'm introducing you to the term because between now, Hebrews 7, and the end of the book, the word shows up 15 times. There are actually many covenants in the Bible. Some continue to be binding, and others are no, are no longer binding. Here's an example of a covenant that God continues to uphold. We read about the flood in Genesis 6. God says He's going to establish a covenant with Noah. And after God does this, the heavens open up. You know the story. The heavens open up and the rain just falls on the earth. After the waters subside, God says this to Noah. I establish my covenant with you that never again, this is God speaking, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is, for, that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow, a rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. There's big picture. There's two type of covenants in the Bible. There are conditional covenants and there are unconditional covenants. Conditional, unconditional. God made an unconditional covenant with Noah. God will never again flood the earth. And as a reminder of God's promise, a rainbow appears in the sky, which I think is pretty cool. (laughs) Like every time it rains and there's a rainbow, I'm just like, that's actually a reminder for me about God's unconditional covenant that he made with Noah. That's pretty amazing. At least I think so. There are also conditional covenants. For example, God told Adam that if he or Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would die. Adam and Eve broke the covenant. We call this a covenant of works. And God fulfilled his, fulfilled his promise, right? Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. So the term covenant means there is a binding agreement between two parties. Perhaps a modern concept of a contract is helpful, helpful for you to understand covenant. For example, Redemption Hill is in a contract with the Waukee School District, right? We rent this facility every single day, and, and attached to this agreement or this contract are, con, are conditions. If we break the conditions, they could just boot us out. So there's two sides to a covenant, and frequently, both sides are not equal. Most times, they're not equal at all. There's just one more side note about covenants. If I could tell my younger self one thing about how to study the Bible, if i go back, you know, 20-year-old, 22-year-old Sean, hey, here's how I think you should study the Bible. Trace the covenants throughout scripture and understand how they're connected with God's redemptive plan. So for younger folks who are studying the Bible, that's my advice to you. Understand the nature of covenants and understand how they fit in, how they explain God's redemptive plan. Okay, so what does all this have to do with our passage? Because Jesus is the greatest high priest, He ensures a better covenant. Look at verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The first century Jew and the converted Jewish Christian would have had their head spinning at hearing this kind of statement. The Gentiles that converted to Christianity, not so much, at least not with this statement. They they had different changes they needed to wrestle with. But if you grew up Jewish and you were told this new thing is going to change everything about your life, including how you worship, well, that is a lot to take in. It's a lot to take in. So for the remainder of this message, I want to show you the change that took place under the new covenant for Jewish Christians and why this is actually still really, really, really good news, not just for Jews who converted to Christianity, but good news for you and me. What I'm going to show you from Hebrews 7 is why the new covenant is better than the old. Here here are a few headings if you're a a note taker. I'm going to show you the priesthood is no longer Levitical and why that's important. I'm going to show you why there's only a need for one priest. And show you Jesus is the final and ultimate indestructible sacrifice. And there's a paradox in that particular heading that I need to explain. The first point has been evident for several weeks, but it's being spelled out here in Hebrews 7. Here's what's going on. If you're familiar with the Bible's first five books, we call it the Pentateuch, you know that Aaron was the first priest who served alongside Moses. After the law was given, now think in your head like Ten Commandments, perhaps, it was stated that the tribe of Levi would offer priests to serve the people and mediate before God and his people, Right? So that's the Levite from this tribe are going to come priests who stand between the people and God. The Levite priests were instructed to ensure the law was being fulfilled. That was their job. you got one job. Here's the, here's the law. Make sure it's being fulfilled. You can't have a sacrifice as commanded by the law without the Levitical priesthood. That's why we read about it in Hebrews 7. They were important. And here's one problem with these Old Testament priests. They were not chosen because of their excellent character. They were not chosen because some guy used his networking skills to get this other guy an interview, right? Hey, I want to be a Levitical, Levitical priest. I know a guy. That's not what happened. The only way a person became a priest was the prescription of the law, which means the priest had to be from the tribe of Levi. The result was a lot of flawed in some bad priests. Read Hebrews 7, verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? The question's a bit rhetorical. Because the Levitical priesthood is flawed, there is, there is a need for another that can mediate between God and man. The English word perfection, that's verse 11, has this range of meanings. I'm not sure it's the best word to be translated at in our English. The root is teleos, which means a completion or a fulfillment. Regardless of how you how you translate that Greek word, it is clear that the Levitical priesthood is flawed and the law, while having a grace-filled purpose, does not redeem and reconcile the people of God. While the law is good and holy, it has limitations. Like every contract, it has limitations. Here's the takeaway. Number one, the Levitical priesthood is flawed. Number two, the law which the Levites were to follow had limitations the author of Hebrews is beginning to show us the difference between the old and the new. Let's consider what's going on in Hebrews with a modern-day example. Uh, Many of you know, I know some of you are in the same boat, you grew up Catholic, Um, which means you went to Mass, went to Mass every Sunday, sometimes I went on Wednesday, I received the Eucharist, um, I was an altar boy, had the robe and the whole, whole nine yards. Went through Catholic catechism, often went to a priest for confession. My mom prayed for years that I would become a priest. What I want you to see is the difference between a Catholic priest and what we practice here at Redemption Hill. I'm not, I'm not knocking Catholicism at all. I just want you to see the difference and highlight them so you can properly understand Hebrews 7. Here is the first dif- distinction and difference. A Catholic priest is a sinner, okay? Pastor Sean and Pastor Rob are also sinners. Now here's the critical difference. The Catholic Church attempts to hold on to the vestiges of the Levitical priesthood. But looking at that, and they're trying to bring it forward. Growing up, when I participated in the sacrament of confession, it was the priest, on behalf of God, who forgave my sins. The sacrament of confession in the Catholic Church is when a person goes before the priest, confesses sins, and then the priest tells that person to say several prayers to be absolved from their sins. This part of the process is called penance. I know I'm simplifying what's going on during confession, but I trust you see the difference between Hebrews 7 and what happens with Catholic confession, right? Growing up, I was dependent upon the priest to tell me my penance and to tell me, you're forgiven. Now, on the one hand, I do appreciate how the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church and and several Protestant denominations look at the Old Testament and an attempt to display the relevance in the present. I, I actually appreciate that. As I've stated over and over, I am troubled by the fact that evangelical Christianity in America is setting aside the Old Testament. I'm bothered by that. On the other hand, the theology that holds up the practice of the sacrament of confession, as one example, does not square with what we read in Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10. What I want us to see from Hebrews 7 is that Jesus is the greatest high priest, and therefore, under the new covenant, access to God is not through any earthly priest. I don't need a priest to tell me, here's what you got to do as your penance. You need to say, eight are our fathers, three Hail Marys, and two Glory Bees, and then you'll be forgiven. Here's what Pastor Rob and I do. We point you to Christ. We point you directly to Christ. We point you to the one who is in the order of Melchizedek. Do we want to pastor and help you? 100%, without a doubt. But pastoring means helping you focus on Christ. And helping you focus on Christ, it's not merely platonic But helping you focus on Christ means showing you how the spiritual impacts your physical reality. When you are crying out to God to be forgiven of of your sin, and Christian, you are forgiven. Something spiritual and physical is taking place at the same time because of Christ. And I'll even say this, a pastor, priest, or minister who does not lead you and show you the great high priest is neglecting their responsibility. So we point to Christ over and over and over and over. Okay, back to our passage. The author of Hebrews strengthens his argument about Christ by adding that Jesus is in the line of Judah, verse 14. So if you go and read the genealogies of Matthew 1 and, and Luke 3, you'll notice the tribe of Judah and Judah himself is in those genealogies. The author of Hebrews is showing us the superiority of Christ, not only over the Levitical priesthood, but his superiority over all of history, all of history. The next aspect of Jesus' priestly nature is that he is eternal. Therefore, we do not, do not need earthly Levitical priests. Here's a passage that, that also has a point of application. Hebrews seven twenty three. The former priests were many in number. There's a lot of them because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives and makes intercession for them. I got news for you. All the Levitical priests have died. (laughs) They're dead, gone. Uh, It's estimated there're probably 22,000 levitical priests throughout history and they're gone but there's one who is eternal of course Psalm 110:4 is once again in view the bona fides of Jesus Christ is that he is the eternal priest the son has always been in existence he is god Verse 25 is a remarkable statement because the son is the eternal high priest. You can now draw near to God. You don't need to call in a priest to figure it out. You do not need to call Pastor Rob or Sean to draw near to God. No, no, you work it through life, call us. Absolutely, by all means. We want to care for you, shepherd you. But you don't need us to draw near to God. You draw near to God through Jesus. A person's relationship with God can be restored through Christ and Christ alone. There is another application point here. I know that we're not tempted to find a Jewish rabbi and to find our way to God, right? I don't think anyone's having those thoughts. How do I draw near to God? Find that Jewish rabbi. Our temptation to find salvation might look a little different. To find temptation through something or someone else. For example, we can look to ourselves. We might look to others. Uh, last year, I blew the minds of my eighth grade class uh, that I teach. My, my goal is when I teach is to get them to think critically, especially as they look at the world, as they look at a, listen to a song or as they watch a movie or whatever. So I played the song Holy by the Florida Georgia Line. If you're a country music fan, you've definitely heard of that song because it's a very popular song. And If I'm being honest, it's probably heretical as well. Um, The song is about a man talking about a woman and it's using Christian language. Here's the last line of the song. You're the healing hands where it used to hurt. You're my saving grace. You're my kind of church. You're holy. Like I had parents of kids emailing me and be like, I had no idea. I can never listen to that song again. I'm like, good. One of the most significant spiritual pandemics is to functionally believe that salvation is found in another person other than Christ. is to believe that you can draw near to God through this other person, not necessarily a priest or a pastor, but usually it's that person you have this emotional connection with or you want some emotional connection with. I know the danger is not limited to age, but young men and women are especially susceptible. And the truth is a person can only draw near to God through Christ. A person can only be saved by God through faith in Christ. Take a look at verse 27, 25, excuse me, one more time. What Christ is doing, here's what Christ is doing for you. He is interceding to the Father. He is the one standing between you and the Father. He is the Son of Righteousness. He is more than a boxing referee between two sides. He is more than a court mediator who concludes a dispute between two parties. The Son is the great high priest. He has brought ultimate reconciliation to God's people. As the title of my sermon suggests, out with the old covenant and in with the new covenant because of Christ. Here is the next reason why the new covenant is greater than the old. Jesus is the final and ultimate indestructible sacrifice. Verse 14 of Hebrews 7. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, made that point already, and in connection with the tribe of Moses, said nothing about priest. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, Author of Hebrews keeps hammering home that particular point. Verse 16, who has become a priest, not only on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. He's just building his argument as to why Jesus is superior. Under the new covenant, there is a paradox that I want you to see and I want you to embrace. We read about it in verse 16. The paradox shows us the power of God and the supremacy of Christ under this new covenant. Here's the paradox Jesus Christ died on a cross and then demonstrated his indestructible life by walking out of the tomb three days later. So the paradox is this how is something indestructible? How did that die? but both are true at the same time. He's indestructible, but he died and then he walked out of the tomb to show he is superior. He is the superior high priest. The chief evidence that Jesus has ushered in a new covenant is the resurrection. Go read 1 Corinthians 15 you see that his life is indestructible. His life is endless. The fact that the son's life is indestructible trumps the need for a high priest to be a part of this Levitical line. Further, Jesus, it says here, is the final sacrifice. I'll take a look at verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, day in, day out, week in, week out, First for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Just to make sure you know what you're seeing, let's fast forward to Hebrews 10. Same point's being made here. He does, he does away with the first order to establish the second. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Verse 11. And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Again, um, my Catholic friends, and I I have... Many Catholic friends, and we, we debate this all the time. Actually, three weeks ago, I met a guy at a coffee shop, devout Catholic, and we, we talked about this particular issue. And I said to him, you have to explain to me how Jesus isn't sacrificed every time you celebrate the Eucharist. According to your theology and your tradition, you got to explain that to me. We call it the Lord's table. They call it the Eucharist. They believe that bread literally turns into the body of Christ and wine literally turns into the blood of Christ. The theological term there is transubstantiation. Yes, I know how they would respond to my critique, but at the end of the day, how one interprets the Bible will shape their theology. When we read... The book of Hebrews, naturally, the only conclusion that we can come to is Jesus is the ultimate and final sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. We don't need an altar. We don't need a priest. We don't need to get that dove. We don't need to get that bull to make that sacrifice. That is done for. And we should celebrate that. Not only for the fact that it's bloody and messy. But we've been forgiven once and for all. Because of the greatest sacrifice... It was Jesus Christ himself. If I had to sum up what we read in Hebrews 7, it would be with two phrases. The first is obvious, and the second probably needs some explanation. The first is, and it's been repeated, Jesus is the great high priest and the greatest and final sacrifice. Yes and amen. Because Jesus is the great high priest and the greatest sacrifice, there are aspects of the old covenant law that have been fulfilled in Christ. That's Matthew 5, verse 17. There are aspects of the Old Testament law that no longer apply. Again, you don't need to get the bull and the dove and make that sacrifice. These aspects of the law we call ceremonial and sacrificial aspects of the law have been fulfilled. The old administration of the old covenant is done with. Most Protestants can hang with me on these, on these points. They can say yes and amen. I got gotcha. you. A debate breaks out when Protestant Christians talk about the moral law. What do we do with that aspect of the law? What do we do with the Ten Commandments? Right? Has Jesus fulfilled those aspects as well? I'll give you my opinion, knowing that some people in this room um, probably disagree, which is cool. But I'll give you my opinion. It seems that the Book of Hebrews is taking direct aim at the sacrificial and ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law. The Ten Commandments, in my opinion, are not being questioned, but more of these functional aspects of the law are in view. In addition, I, I think and we went over this as a church. I think the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five through seven is a restating and a proper interpretation of the moral aspect of the law. My last point on the matter is that the moral law, whether you read about it in the Old or New Testaments, is tied to the character of God. And because that's true, we need to be careful to disregard the moral basis of the law on that alone. It's tied to God's character. Now again, people disagree, and that's cool. So how do I land this plane Once again, let's end with the hope we have because of Christ. He is a superior high priest who has ushered in a new covenant. Hebrews 7, verse 17 to 19. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This better hope has been introduced and that better hope allows us to draw near to God. The hope you and I have is in Christ and it is a hope that allows us to come to God Verse 19 is a statement that is shot through with the grace and mercy of God. The conditions under the new covenant are vastly different than than the conditions under the old covenant. There's a direct line between you and God. So, does God seem distant to you this morning? God is here, I assure you. You do not need to go to a temple under the new covenant. The temple is the people of God. You might notice that when I pray, I pray that the Holy Spirit, I trust that the Holy Spirit is here. I say that very specifically. God is here because God's people are here. Therefore, you can draw near to God. The call for you, Christian, is to live in the reality that exists under the new covenant. You can draw near to God right here and right now, and that is such a hopeful reality. Let's pray.